0: Hey, this is Lance Miller. Just had a great talk with Ryan online, and I discussed the two most difficult things to do in public speaking. But once you do them, it aligns everything, not only on stage, but in your life. You better listen to this. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast, brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money.
1: Here's your host, Ryan Foland. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back today with not only a world champion speaker of the Toastmasters organization, but he is an international speaker. He's a communication guy. He's a leadership guy. He does organizational design. I've had the pleasure of seeing him on stage. I'll probably share with him. He might not remember. I went up on stage as a test dummy at one point, and I still have some of the things that he passed out at that show years ago. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only Lance Miller. Welcome to the
0: show, Lance. How you doing? I'm doing great and so glad to have some time to get back together.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was funny. We ran into each other recently at the National Speakers Association in Los Angeles and we just had great conversation. I'm like, why don't we bring this on the air live around the world? Because you do embody what we look for in the world of speakers guests. You've spoken around the world you know, you really are giving back and your advice today, I am guessing is going to be groundbreaking for people that are not only just starting to speak, but those people who are at that same level, because, you know, the more we learn from people like you, the more we can all communicate more effectively. So there's, there's your long intro. I usually don't get all caught up like that, but that's okay. Uh, Let's start with who you are. Where did this all begin? And how did you get to where you are now, speaking to the masses and helping leaders become better leaders.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I look back on my life and there were times that, especially in my mid-20s, early 30s, that I felt like I was on such a wrong path. And I look at where I am today and what I've accomplished, and I have been on the path I wanted to be on, and I wound up there. And I'm, I've, I'm very fortunate that I get out of bed every day and love what I do. And there were a lot of, I had a lot of years, though, I didn't do that. But I, I started... You know, I'm a Midwest guy. I started in a little town of 2,000 people in Indiana. My family had a milk and ice cream business. It was sort of like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, only Lance in the Ice Cream Factory. It uh, <laughs> a little town. You know, kids used to look at me in school and go, do you get to eat all the ice cream you want? And I go, nah, you know, my parents won't let me. It'll ruin my dinner.
1: <laughs> I had the opposite. I, I came from parents who were educators and they were principals. So everybody knew that
0: I was the kid that had parents as principals. <laughs> the opposite of ice cream. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. <laughs> And I mean, I was a great childhood. I had a lot. I had a small town, so I was, you know, driving equipment when I was young, and I was working, and I had a lot of, we'll say, applied education in life because I was constantly having to figure out how many bags of salt or sugar run a semi low semi and get them into a warehouse, you know, and putting bales of hay in barns and all that kind of hard work that I grew up with. But I look back, even in the second, third, fourth grade, I was constantly getting up in front of the class and doing a report and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Sometimes I was frustrated that I had to write a report and get up, but I enjoyed getting up and talking. And all through high school, I was team captains on different sports and would regularly have to address the student body. And I was as nervous wreck when I did it, but I loved doing it.
1: That's an interesting combo. The nervousness, but liking the nervousness. Now, people have talked about nervousness as just a slightly different form of excitement. Do you think that's what it was for you? Was it nervous that was excitement?
0: Well, I do a deep dive on stage fright and what it is. And here's my take on it, that speaking is a muscle and that our speaking muscles are atrophied. And when we stand up in front of a group and try to speak, we don't have the strength and the, the, the speaking muscle that we need. Because quite honestly, through most of life, we're told to sit there and shut up. You know, you think about when your kid's in the family, you know, your parents want you to be quiet. You go to school, sit in the, you know, sit in the class and don't say anything. You go to work, show up, sit in, this, sit in this, show up on time, sit at the desk, don't rock the boat. We don't actually get an opportunity to speak. And what was going on is I just had a weak speaking muscle. Hmm. I will still have... And, I, and I'm going to compare that to, let's just compare that to a second, to a, a body, of physical muscle. You know, if you sat on the couch and ate Hagen dust for 20 years and watched Law and Order, and then somebody came over and goes, hey, let's run around the block, you know, you might make it to your front door <laughs> before you passed oh, out. Right. And that's a little bit like public speaking. We don't speak regularly, and then somebody goes, hey, stand up and say something. And we go, oh, I should be able to do that. But that muscle isn't tuned in. And really – what the my Toastmasters experience since for the last twenty six years, and one of the reasons I've stayed in that organization is it's like going to the gym every week for me. Is that it? I, I've just strengthened that muscle. And all I would say is that you know, frequent speaking will get you through your stage fright. And there's some other components: knowing your message, knowing your audience, that will throw you off. But the main thing is, is that usually your speaking muscle is weak, and that was very true for me back then. And but I, the funny thing was, I had this purpose, I had this drive, I wanted to do it. And I can remember as a kid, being like 12, 13 years old, we raised horses. I'd be Saturday in the barn shoveling manure, and I'd be thinking, you got to go speak. And I'd look out at these rolling hills in southern Indiana, and I'd go, are you nuts? You're standing in a barn shoveling manure. What do you think you're supposed to be doing? And I would just invalidate the crap out of myself on, no, I shouldn't be doing that. I'm nobody important, and probably like a lot of people. But whenever I I can go all the way through college, whenever I had an opportunity, I was, I was always getting into a leadership position and I would have an opportunity to speak. I had a huge inclination that that's where I wanted to be. But like a lot of people, I had to get over myself. I had to get over my own feet, you know, constantly being told through life that I needed to be better than I was and believing that message so thinking somebody was more qualified than me to stand up and say something. But usually when I had a group and I put them together, I was really able to unite people and bring them together and get them to work well from the time I was 13, 14 years old. I started putting crews together, unload trucks, you know, in my my family's business when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. And we had a fun time, you know, But and that, that was the first little bits of leadership that I got into. So, so my roots go clear back to when I was a kid.
1: Yeah. Now, when you were shoveling hay and you're looking out, did you ever turn the pitchfork
0: into a microphone and start talking <laughs> to the horses? I did not. I did not do okay. that. Uh, I, I learned early on the only way the manure got out of the barn and in the, in the manure spreader was one scoop at a time. And the better off I was doing was shoveling if I wanted to get be free Saturday night to go out with my buddies. So Nice. Yeah.
1: Now, one of the things when I was doing some slight cyber stalking on you, you had a a unique experience and what really got you into, I guess, speaking more regularly and flexing that muscle into like a bodybuilder. But when it comes to the government and tax, I'm curious about that. Maybe you can explain because it sounds like you did some bodybuilding with your speaking muscle during that time.
0: I dove in, uh, Ryan, I dove in. To the two things you're not supposed to do now, in all honesty, it, it was done in the correct way, which was politics and religion right up front. with The two subjects you're not <laughs> supposed to talk about. Right. And I dove right. in headfirst into that. I had been, in the late 80s, uh, I wound up being audited six years in a row by the IRS and quite honestly just ticked me off. Because it had nothing to do with my tax returns. It had to actually do with Sort of political and organizational things that I was involved in. Nothing radical. It was just that things that the IRS decided they were going to look into that. Yeah. And so I was getting dragged into these audits year after year. And there was a group that had started called Citizens for an Alternative Tax System, which was a tax system that we wouldn't have a private dossier on every person in the United States, and you could earn all the money you wanted and save it. Nobody would tax it. You paid money when you spend it. So everybody would pay it. It sounded like a fun system for me. So I actually got trained in public relations and how to do radio interviews. And I I took a course by a, a gentleman named Jackson Bain, who was, he was on NBC or ABC or something like that. He was, a, he was a newscaster and they trained us in that. And then I did about 300 radio stations around, 300 radio shows around the country debating federal tax policy. And that was back in 92 when We had Clinton and Bush, and then Ross Perot was running, and they had the Reform Party. So I was speaking at all these Reform Party events, and sometimes people would give me standing ovations, and sometimes they walked out of the room. I'm not kidding. They just got up and walked out. I didn't know what was working. I didn't know how to make it work. If it was working, I didn't know how to correct it. If it wasn't, I was just passionate about the subject, and I got up and was speaking about it. It was great. It was a great experience, though.
1: But it sounds like that gave you the muscle to then take that ability to go out there and and do some
0: other good things with it, right? Well, what it did, it actually allowed me to realize this was something I wanted to do. And it was something that, that I had a huge passion in doing. And it was also something that I realized I needed to work on because I didn't know what I was doing. But I was willing to do the work. And that's one of the things that I would say there are a lot of areas of my life I have not been really successful in. There are the areas I have been. I have had that passion and that drive, and I was willing to do the work in speaking and communicating. And I and I really want, really want to emphasize this. It, for me, it's never been just speaking; it's been the message to unify. It's really what it's like. I in in eighty four, I moved to Los Angeles from my little town in Indiana to get away from the. Small town, Indiana. (laughs) The nepotistic aspects of the family business I was in. I went. I got to sort my life out, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had a couple college buddies that lived out here, and I moved into the garage of their house. And the '84 Olympics were going on, and I went. Maybe I'll go down and take tickets for the Olympics. Long story short, I wound up getting hired as an executive in the Olympics in '84. Wow. Okay. And uh, and there's a whole story behind that, and it actually it it stemmed I. I wound up having a little long, longer interview with this lady than – because there's nobody in line, and her husband was from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and she goes, you're new in town, right? And I go, yeah. She goes, you want to go to a party? And I said, yeah. She goes, we're having a hat party tomorrow night. So I go to this party with all these paid staff of the Olympic Committee, and I wore a hat, and it was like a hat and Long Island iced tea party. <laughs> and I, I drank too many Long Island iced teas, without a doubt. But about a week later, they needed somebody; they needed more staff at, in their department, and they said, "Remember that guy that was at the party?" Everybody goes, "Oh yeah, he just moved out here, and everybody liked me." And they called me in, and I got—I wound up getting hired at the headquarters in the transportation department, and then. I helped put about 10,000 people into transportation jobs, get them through the processing system and everything. And then I went down and was assistant manager of a motor pool that drove 70 countries and had 300 volunteer drivers at USC. And, but here's what happened at that time. I saw the world come together. I saw the city as diverse as Los Angeles is unify and come together and work together. I saw 70 countries of different cultures, ethnic backgrounds, nationalities, nationalities, religions come together in unison and work together peaceably. And it was a life-changing experience. And I went, we can actually do this. We can get along. We don't have to fight and argue and, you know, shoot missiles at each other and throw rocks. We can get along. And that, that experience really had a very transformational viewpoint of my view of me towards, uh, towards the world. Is that how you got into the into the
1: human rights, you know, speaking out for people in that respect?
0: The human rights. I was talking about that. It it was there again, I think that, you know, there's an old saying, sort of, when the student's ready, the teacher appears, I I think we create opportunities for ourselves because we have an interest. There were some laws passed in Europe in the mid-90s that and it was this was pulled up by the sort of a Freedom of Information Act that there were 100, like 187 religions targeted to be criminally charged for practicing their religion, and it was a very small group of people, which it always is, that sort of gets the government to, to pass something like that. And uh, the church I attend was on the list, as were many other churches, and there was a foundation formed to – fight it. They didn't know how to fight it, but it was called the International Foundation for Human Rights and Tolerance. And some people knew of my adventure activity. Uh, You know, I've sailed across the Atlantic. I've rafted rivers all across the U.S. I'm a private pilot. I've done all this stuff. I've hitchhiked across Europe. And then I'm also a speaker and a leader. And I've done PR. I had all the PR training from debating tax policy I was just telling you about. And they said, we don't have anybody of your qualifications. We need someone to run a, to lead a 2,000 mile marathon through eight countries in Europe this summer, and would you come do it? And I, long story, I said I couldn't at first, and then I said this is too, this is too wild of an of an opportunity to pass up, and so I started doing that for seven years. We organized two and three thousand mile marathons. Would run them for six to eight, ten weeks at a time with a team of about ten runners, and got basically those laws corrected and changed, and brought a lot of public awareness to it. But yes, to be honest, that was part of that. It's like if somebody doesn't. Well, I'll just – one of my quotes I love is what Martin Luther King Jr. said is that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I just said, I'm in the United States. We have religious freedom. Other places aren't. If those dominoes start to fall, they're going to fall here before long too if we we allow them to fall. And so um, I I didn't make any money doing that. But I got to tell you, those marathons were some of the best times of my life because they were – they were adventures with a great purpose behind them a great team of people and for a huge cause that were, was helping everybody everybody around wow from shoveling poo to our- to, <laughs> uh, to
1: to creating you know thousands of miles of change and yeah. if, i always like to think of speakers in terms of their stories and you seem to have a lot to pull from do you think that this life experience that you have is really a driving force be, you know behind even the ability for you to to bring people together and even to do something as crazy as win the world championship of public speaking.
0: Without a doubt. I think that it's funny. I was meeting one of the past presidents of Terry of the NSA. I was meeting with as He was my mentor a couple of years ago, which is great. And, you know, Ryan, one of the problems I've had as a speaker, I have so much vast experience in so many areas. I keep trying to go, you got to, if you, to be a professional and really make great money, you really need to hone in and have a niche you work on. And I was really struggling with that because I, there's so many things that I'm passionate about. And I go, how do I bottle this up? And I don't want to just do speaking. And I don't want to, you know, just do, I don't know, PowerPoint presentation. Consulting or this or that. Like yeah, that. consulting. You know, it's like there's so much more I want to do with my life. And Terry, I met with Terry and he looked at me and he said, you know, Lance, I'd send him my whole – you know CV and everything I'd done. He goes, I have these people that come to me and they've been a manager at Starbucks and they want to be a professional speaker. And I go, how do I take what they did and make it into a message? He goes, I look at what you've done. How do we put an umbrella over this thing and capture it? He goes, you've got so much experience. And when I start sharing what I've done with different people, they sit there and they go, I've lived like And I don't feel this way, but they go, you've lived like three or four lifetimes this lifetime. And it's like, yeah, there were times I was working one business and I had a startup or turnaround I was doing in the evenings just because I was looking for a bigger game and wanted to try to turn something around and, you know, get into something I could really run and control and and expand, you know. And there were a number of nonprofits I've worked with. And then I said, the crazy situations of just taking off and, you know,
1: Running 2,000 miles and, and do this and do yeah.
0: Cycling from St. Petersburg, Russia to Oslo, Norway for human rights and, you know, meeting with government officials all the way along the way and, and meetings in town squares and all the different stuff that we pulled off. It's just been phenomenal. So, but yeah, all that plays into everything that I, all that plays into your speeches. So,
1: yeah. And, and it sounds like you've used these experiences, uh, you know, as a piggyback for really living these multiple lives. But what is it that you've learned from a tactical standpoint? One being, you know, this, this constant challenge of narrowing down the niche to not confuse people, but you've obviously acquired a lot of practical skills, both on stage and off stage. And it sounds like a lot of your impact has been getting people to do things off stage. But would you agree that the same, whether it's tonal inflection or getting to the point or some of these main, you know, competent communicator concepts? Are they through lines in all these conversations?
0: Oh, with, without a question, I just, speaking's a medium, okay? And just the same way that you could be a writer, it's a medium. You could be a TV announcer, have a radio show, it's a medium. And to me, it's the depth of what's behind that medium. And what are you communicating? And a lot of people get very focused on, and I've seen this. I've been I've been a, speaking for 25 years, and I've been speaking professionally for, what I don't know, 14 now. And so... And seen people, that it's all about the speaking, and then to me, it's like, no, what's the back end behind you? What are you bringing? What experience are you bringing to that stage that you're you're really talking about? And the essence for me in this, within the speaking medium, is that there's a there's a lot of it that I work with, but it, I'll just start with you on this: the power of your message is in the simplicity of the concept, not in the complexity. It's in the simplicity. And the most important thing in your speech is not, certainly isn't you. (laughs) And to be honest, it's not the audience. It's how long does your message resonate in the mind of each single audience member after they hear it? And we've all heard people, we've all had somebody say something to us and we carried their words with us the rest of our life. I just quoted Martin Luther King Jr., yeah, those words resonate with me every single day of my life, and I, I'm aware that you know injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. It means we have to stand up and and protect things. Those words live with me, and then there are there are people that give like self-erasing speeches. You can't remember their name or the word "the" after they say it. Nothing resonates. You leave, and maybe you laughed, you had a great time, but that speech is totally erased. You didn't carry any message forward in your life that affects. Your your life from that point forward. So in all my speaking, I try to make things as real and simple to the audience that I can causatively affect their thinking pattern and cause them to think and then act differently based on what I said. And I know that I'm only as good as a speaker as I can affect long-term change in the people that listen to me. There's a lot that I get into with that too. But in order to do that, you have to address the individual and in the audiences their free will to accept your message and not force your message on them. You have to get them to say, I accept that and take it of their own free will. And that's the challenge of going, wow, I can use that. And they they decide to accept the message versus you ordering them that this is what they need to do. So there's a lot of, I get very granular on my communication, very granular on my message focused content and I'll I'll dive in and share anything you want with that, but I can talk for a couple hours on how to place something specifically. I'm looking in the mind of the audience and I'm looking where I'm placing that message. That's how granular I get.
1: Okay, so I, I like this. And one thing that came to my mind when you're talking about the audience, it's not about you, it's not about the audience, it's about what they retain and their willingness to retain it. It makes me think of the concept of the willing suspension of disbelief, say for a theatrical means, but is there a version of speaking that is the willing suspension of resistance to believing what the person is saying. And how do you how do you get past that? How do you get into the person's mind so that you do have that impact? Do you have structures of how you do your talks, or any tips within
0: that? Sure. First of all, the simplicity that I work with people, and I coach, and I coach a couple hundred, hundred people <laughs> a year. And quite honestly, a lot of it is just because of my love of the Toastmasters program and people contact me on their five to seven minute speeches. And we have the world championship going on right now. So I have a lot of speakers from all over the world sending me their stuff. One of the things I talk about is that it is the enforcement of a message on the audience trying to tell them what they should think versus sharing your experience. I think it's so much more powerful to share rather than tell, so that concept right there, we shift because how many messages do we get hit with on a daily basis telling us to do something? You know, it's literally today with with mobile devices and electronic media, let alone billboards, radio, TV, all the things we get, probably hundreds, if not thousands, of messages. And I, I feel, and this is my own viewpoint, my own philosophy, we have a natural built-in resistance to somebody telling us what to do. Though if we share if somebody shares with us something, then there's no It's our free will to accept that message. We can decide whether we want to accept it or not. So therefore, it's in how we share it that actually gets the audience interested in it. So one of the things that I do and that I teach in speaking is I don't, I say at the end, people feel they have to have this call to action. And so let's just say, for instance, you have this speech about overcoming fear and You realize there wasn't anything but fear, and so you have your you have your realization in the speech. And then I see this all the time, where speakers look at the audience, and then they turn into like this fire and brimstone preacher, and they start going, "How many dreams are you not going to live because of your fears?" You know, and how many how many things are you going to not do because of you? You know, how long? You know, like. And I go, look, dude, here's the fact. You have not interviewed every single person in that audience. You don't know what the life experience of your audience members are. Now, as an example, my uncle was the thirteenth POW taken in North Vietnam during the Vietnam conflict. He was in a Hanoi prisoner of war prison for thirteen or for seven and a half years, tortured weekly. Now he's just bald. Sort of pudgy guy with bad dental work, right? He could be sitting in your audience, and you're going to lo- tell a story about being afraid to go out and play baseball, and then look at that guy and say, "What fears? You know, that guy's handled more fear in his life than you'll ever see in ten lifetimes." Yeah. So you don't know who's sitting in your audience, and this is this has happened to me time and time again. I have I've had people that climb out ever since my my audiences. I had a 70 year old lady that had run the Boston Marathon in my audience. I've never run a marathon in my life. So to stand up in front of the audience and act like you are, you know, God's gift to your message, and you're the smartest person in the room, and everybody in your room doesn't know your message, has no experience with it, and needs to have it crammed down their throat, or as I say, whacked or dead with a two by four, is a great way to disengage your audience. The audiences connect with you by sh- you sharing how you applied your message in your life. You said, "Wow, once I figured this out, I did this, and then I did this, and then I ran into a situation with my wife." And I use this and I did this. And then the audience is going, oh, wow, I could do that. And as soon as the audience goes, oh, I could do that, they're now accepting it of their own free will. It's up to you to show them how well it works and get them to accept it and go, oh, my gosh, I could do that. Or I have a situation where I could apply that in my life. And as soon as they have their realization about that, they accept it and they'll take it on their own free will.
1: Yeah, it makes me think of activation energy from a scientific term where there's a certain amount of activation energy it gets to take an object in motion or a, an object to change motion. And then once it's moving, you're sort of on the right path. So it sounds like you're fighting this built-in resistance to really any broadcast messages as opposed to getting them to start to think about how your experience relates in your life and then the parallel to whatever it may be for them.
0: Yeah, and and with this, one of the things I I go over a lot, people relate more to our failures than to our successes. I'll give you quite an example. I'm in Rotary also, and I'm in one of the iconic Rotary clubs in the world. The LA Rotary Club is the fifth Rotary club in the world out of 33,000 clubs we are over 100 years old. Wow. And um, we're huge. We have over 400 members in it. So we had a gentleman, and I don't remember his name, but it was several years ago. He was one of the past presidents of Coca-Cola Bottling. This is the bottling company, it's not Coca-Cola. So he runs the plants. And he was introduced as the CEO, not the president, the past CEO of Coca-Cola Bottling. And so it's like, wow, oh my gosh, this is one of the top CEOs in the country. And I'm I'm listening to him. And he says, That's right, in 1978, I was recruited as the CEO of Coca-Cola bottling. And for the next nine years, I brought in the best staff I could, and we did everything we could do. And because our stock was selling for $24.30 or something, he said. Then for the next 10 years, I brought in the best people I could. We did everything to get more efficient, to increase our productivity, to squeeze every ounce of profit out of our bottling industry, industry could, we could. And after nine years, our stock was at $22.10. <laughs> and and I, I totally related to him because I've been in so many businesses, I was working my butt off to sink slower. He said, I got replaced, just so you know, as the CEO, they brought in a new MBA team, and it took them only two years to take that company's stock to $10.12. <laughs> 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 I love that guy from that moment on. He didn't stand up and talk about how brilliant he was and successful he was. He talked about how he worked his tail off to think slower and then got removed. And then he was there to talk about a children's program that he had. Wow. I go over this time and time again to stand up and tout about how great you are. Most people in the audience, I feel, I think most people in life live with more frustration on their failures and they feel they have more failures than they do successes. And when you talk about how great you are, that disengages the audience because they don't feel that they're that great. And what it does is sort of indicates they haven't accomplished They're a failure when you talk about how great you are. Instead of saying, Yeah, I I have a keynote I give in Toastmasters called Losing My Way to the World Championship. Right. That, because yeah. I lost that speech contest for twelve years before I ever won the world championship. And I lost at my club for eight before I ever got out of the club. Wow. So I talked about what I learned in losing speech contest and how valuable those lessons were, and I would never go back and win it and lose the lessons I got got through learning through losing. And I just gave that up in Edmonton a, a couple of weeks ago, and they just had their speech contest, and there were a bunch of losers from the speech contest. And they all came up and said, oh, thanks so much for giving that speech, man. That's exactly <laughs> what I needed to hear. And one of the things I've learned, too, is that there's so much failure behind success and so much loss behind winning that, you know, I know if I'm not winning, I'm not losing enough. I just get out there and keep, oh, let's go lose some more, and eventually I'll figure this thing out
1: yeah lose your way to it and i think the public consciousness has been more aware of this failure failing fast failing smarter and and i think that it's definitely applicable when it comes here one very technical question when it comes to talking about yourself versus talking about the audience i've heard a piece of advice float around and i have my opinion on it but the difference between using the word i and you when you're speaking i want to know your opinion on that the the going advice being that it's better to say instead of i'm excited to be here it's like what you're going to learn today is exciting. What about that flip in this breaking the resistance?
0: Well, I wind up getting a lot of people that have actually written speeches grammatically incorrect because they're counting the number of us and I's in their speech. Okay. And I go, that doesn't make any sense to me. This sentence doesn't make any sense to me. And they said, yeah, but I had too many eyes in it. <laughs> Here's my point on it. I think, first of all, It's how we're using the U and the I. I think it's much more important than whether it's you or I. First of all, I I totally disagree with the UI ratio and counting them and all that, 100%.
1: But it is a real thing. People really do focus on that, right? I mean, it's... Yes, there's
0: a certain... School of thought or... Yeah, there's a certain school of thought and there's a specific area that that comes out of that counts the UI ratio. But what they miss is, what are you saying when you say I? If you stand up and you say... I am so excited. I have so many incredible things to tell you today. I am certain I'm going to change your life today. That is BS. But if you say, you know, I was recruited as the CEO of Coca-Cola Bottling, and I worked my tail off, and I brought in the best people I could, and t- 11 years later, I was replaced. And it's a it's a humble – you're sharing your, your humility. You're sharing your experience. You're sharing what you learned from a humble – approach, it can be extremely effective to do, to say, I, and if you, when you say the yous, if you're speaking up to your audience, not speaking down to them, like if you say, how many of you are not going to how many dreams will you not live? That's speaking down to your audience. But if you said, you probably wouldn't make this mistake. And most of you in the audience already know this, but let me tell you how I struggled with this concept. Now it's real because you're putting your audience – I mean, it's, it's a great way to use it because you're putting our audience on a higher pedestal than you are. I struggled with this for a long time. Most of you wouldn't have had that problem because you would have learned the lesson at an earlier age. It took me till I was 28 until I learned this. You're sharing your failure with it, and it's – it's it, it's to me, if you start going, this is what you're going to learn today, You when we're done, you're going to have – now, that can work. I mean, it can work, but – To me, if you do it in an arrogant, self-righteous fashion, you can say you in an arrogant, self-righteous fashion. You can say I in an arrogant, self-righteous fashion. And either one of those are incorrect in my book. You need to say it in a respective – so you need to speak up to your audience. And I go through the whole thing on what humility is. And humility has the root word of the word ground, which means at least you're on the same ground as the audience. And if if your audience was Martin Luther King, Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, JFK – you wouldn't go, how many fears are you? <laughs> you wouldn't be yelling at them like that. You'd be going, I am so honored to speak in front of you. Let me share something in my life. You're a lot smarter than I am. And so uh, that, that's where the UI ratio comes in. It's how you use the U and the I is much more important to me than whether it's you or I. Well, you were talking about this whole
1: humbleness. So I've got a, a new word here for you. So humble, but spelt with an I, it's humble. Instead of H-U-M-B-L-E, it's H-I. Instead of the U, the I.
0: I don't know if that's cheesy enough, but I like it. Well, we'll get it in the dictionary. Totally.
1: Okay, so let's transition into a little bit of talking how we can use this, uh, (laughs) the Himble method to have value that you're driving with people. But a lot of times people will say, okay, that's great, but how do I get to bigger stages? How do I get in front of bigger audiences? Some might say, how do they make money? But you might say, how do you drive more value? How do you make more people connect? What is it that will help people get from
0: speaking to speaking more and speaking on bigger stages? Well, first of all, there's a whole business of speaking. And one of the lessons I've learned, as you mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, we met at an NSA uh, chapter meeting. And I had probably incorrectly thought that if I did a great job speaking, that that would just build my speaking business. You know, it's just like deliver quality every place I go. And I feel I do that, that it it would build my speaking business. There is a business of speaking. I'll say this in the Toastmasters world, Toastmasters is not in the business of speaking. National Speakers Association, if you're in the U.S., Canadian Association of Professional Speakers, if you're in Canada, wherever you are, is in the business of speaking. And so there is a whole business aspect to this, and you need to get with a group of peers, first of all, and mentors that you can work with and work in that business. But let's just look at the specific aspects of wanting to get to bigger and bigger audiences. One of the things that, I, that I've experienced in my life is that every time I speak, I, get, do, I do get people coming up to me, I'm gonna actually qualify this, Every time I speak outside of a Toastmasters conference, at Toastmasters conferences, I have an iconic status because as a world sta- world champion, and I'm not saying that from an egotistical standpoint, that is sort of the golden ring a lot of people want in Toastmasters. Yeah, absolutely. So as a world champion, I have a really high status with them. I have a huge track record of leadership and accomplishment in that organization. I have a huge track record of the number of districts I've spoken at, the number of districts that their club in memberships, their educational achievement has boomed after I've spoken at them. So I have a very powerful position. I don't get a lot of people coming up to me after Toastmaster conferences saying, "I want you to speak at my organization." Right. When I speak outside of Toastmasters, I have always have people come up to me and say, "I want you to you, you speak at other organizations. I, this message is necess- is needed." And one of the things I talk about in promoting yourself is. I will speak. If I if I'm not busy that day and I get an opportunity to speak, I will go speak. Because I don't consider it speaking for free. I consider it promoting myself for free. Hmm. And I will go get in front of an audience and what I know is the best promotion I could do. And I I give this example. You could come up with a great one page or excuse me, one sheet. You could build a great website, you could buy email list. And you could spend, let's just say, $5,000 on online marketing and mailing out your one sheet to, let's say, 500 companies, right? Right. And you spend $5,000 doing that. Nobody knows you. Or you could spend $5,000 in gas and mileage and go speak. Hmm. Spend the same amount of money in front of audiences, and you will get more business going out and talking to rotary clubs and Kiwanis clubs and Chamber of Commerce and even, you know, call up a trade association and say, no, I'll come speak for free. I just wanna I just wanna talk to your members. Because when you're there, you're delivering what you do. You get an hour or forty-five minutes or whatever it is. You get 30 minutes, whatever your presentation time is, of almost one on one time or one on fifty or one on five hundred, whatever it is, but they get to know you and they get to hear what you have to say. And here's the key. If you do a good job, people will come up <laughs> and you their business cards. If you don't do a good job, you're in the wrong business and you, need, you, know, you, need to go, you, you now have to go out and change what you're doing or increase your skills. But one of the things that I have done is I've taken many opportunities to a lot of times speak for organizations where, or opportunities where I didn't get paid to simply get in front of the group. And it's, it's, that has always worked very well for me. Uh, and the the bottom line, and this was a lesson, quite honestly, Ryan, I learned in the the, the speech contest, the World Championship speech contest. I in two thousand, I won in two thousand five, but in two thousand three, I went over one second in the in the regionals, which are now the semifinals, and I was disqualified. Ooh. And I was pretty pretty arrogant the next next year. That I I was like yeah I, was, I should have gone to the show I should have been on the final stage everybody knows that I just it was a technicality one second that was in my mind and I came into a division level contest which is three levels up of the six levels you go and I w- I was arrogant I was like yeah you know everybody knows that I'm a world cha- I'm a I'm a like international speaker I just have to speak at this contest because it's a, it's sort of a stepping stone on my road to the you know where I need to speak yeah right. <laughs> And I didn't respect that audience and I lost that contest at the division level the next year because I didn't respect my audience. And that's one of the things I talk about. When you're speaking to a group of people, that better be the most important group of people in your life. And I'm coming back around to your business question. When you're speaking to a group of people, do everything you can to deliver a quality message to them and change their lives and and resonate with them and and give, you know, help them as much as you can and i think if you do that you're going to you're you're going to get people reaching out to you and you're going to get more and more opportunities now that being said there are your website your social media presence your association your working with you know teaming up with people and putting on team you know presentations or being hired by corporations on a team basis there's so many things you can do to actually work the business but what i really one of the big things, and I I really feel this, you got to find what's right for you. There's a lot of people out there making a lot of money to teach speakers how to make money in the speaking business, and those people aren't making money in the speaking right, business. They're right. making money selling a dream to the people that want to be a speaker. And uh, they charge a lot of times a lot of money for it. And they probably deliver something that's okay, but usually it's a cookie-cutter website, program, book, all this sort of stuff. But the thing is... That represents the essence of who you are as a speaker. And the best speakers I heard, and this, I've I watched speakers for years because I wanted to figure out what they were doing, were authentic, were real, were humble. They had real experience they were bringing to the table. They weren't arrogant they weren't talking down to the audience they were there to try to make a dent their heart was in the right place those were the people that resonated with me and those were the people i wanted that was the type of speaker i wanted to be when i when i spoke i didn't want to i wanted to be the same guy you'd meet in the hall as you met on the stage
1: right so here's here's maybe the final some final thoughts and final question on this cuz this is all great stuff and it and it really comes down to making it make sense for you and while you're in front of the audience making it make sense for them if we were to say that leaders are speakers and speakers are leaders. What I'm hearing is that there's a lot of collaboration that needs to happen. So I know that professionally you help leaders work together. You help teams cohesively form around ideas. What are ways that speakers can work better with other speakers to help build that network and to help sort of trail off of and and find that support network?
0: Well that's where like an organization like the National Speakers Association I think really and your local chapter is really what I'm what I'm thinking of is re- where it really comes together where what I have found in that organization is that people are are totally willing to share the truth they're sharing what's what's honest about what they do what worked what didn't work because they don't want they don't want people to make the same mistake. There's a lot of costly mistakes. I've made costly mistakes. I mean, if I had the amount of money that I have given people to do websites and online programs for me <laughs> back, you know, I'd be driving a really nice car right now. Okay? Right. <laughs> having You know, sitting in the driveway and stuff. There's all sorts of mistakes you make. And I think that, and, and this is true, I think, in any, in any business. And this is the, the key point. The speaking business is a business. And you need to surround yourself with people you trust and that, that you can, you know, whether you call it a mastermind group or you call it, you know, a good old boy network or whatever. Uh, I know, you know, in business I would have, when I was running businesses, I would have other business owners or I have a close group of friends. We all run our own businesses. We get together and smoke cigars and, you know, Play golf at a charity tournament, the whole time we're going, we're sw- we're going to have, have you ever, or, or if somebody has a problem, they pick up the phone and they say, Hey, you know, I've got this problem with my employee and I'm trying to figure out how to handle it. What do you recommend? Let me run this by you. But you have a trusted group of people around you that you can throw ideas off of. And that's as a speaker, because we're pr- very much solopreneurs, you know. We're, I'm in the process right now of building out more of an organization. And I was sharing with you earlier, I'm just, I'm starting a a partnership about two months into it right now, doing business turnarounds and uh, business expansion and growth, specializing in that. But I'm in the process in my whole speaking business of bringing in more of a group because I can't handle everything I'm doing. But we're, but it's very easy to get caught in your own mental limitations. And that's why it's good to have people that people around you that you liaise with. But And, um, you know, that you can pick up the phone and call. And I I have found that 100% with my NSA group that uh, I'm working on a whole new online program. And I've had two or three conference calls with people and we swap notes back and forth. And this is what's working for me. And this is the program I used on that one. And you know, this was the best uh, cloud system that I found to store my stuff on the cloud. And we're just sharing with each other. We're not competitors. We're all trying to survive out there. So that's really what I recommend is surround yourself with a group of sort of like minded people you trust and you feel that here's the key thing I look at when I'm looking for someone. Do I feel I'm more empowered when I'm with them or do I feel like they suck the life out of me? <laughs> That's you know I want to get with people that when I'm with them I feel more empowered and that they feel more empowered because they're around me because there are people that I they have you know I don't know maybe they were a vampire in a past life or something like that they just have right, a tendency to just just suck to you know, suck all the energy out of you and you know they're the type of person that can't get out of a crosswalk if there's a runaway you know a, a car coming down the road you know well that really that really
1: speaks to your idea of being the same person on stage and off stage and if. You really want to be that magnetic person with the value that people remember on stage and off stage.
0: Absolutely. And here's the key. I'm I'm going to just talk about that. For the early part of my life, I had a tendency to sort of morph with the group I was with. And as I say, when I was with my family, I was one way. There were a certain set of values and there were certain activities that were rewarded and others that weren't and then you know i'd go to church on sunday and i would morph with my church group but then i would be out with my buddies on friday night and i acted a little different and i was would would be at work or at school and i'd act a little different and then you'd have an identity crisis when two people from two different groups came together and right and you didn't know how to act right yeah when your church friends want to hang out with you on friday night <laughs> yeah exactly you know it's like lance you're, you know the church people are going you're so boisterous and your little friday night guys are going you're so quiet and demure what's going right. on and so when you stand up to speak what can happen is all of a sudden we're used to this what I call this sort of this morphing complex <laughs> and this is, again I this is my viewpoint on it okay and I go you you have a tendency to want to morph with the audience but what happens is when you do that the modi- the audience like you're giving a speech you don't think it's going well and you go well I'll try this I'll try that because you're trying to get that that connection with the audience and the audience actually becomes the the author of your speech because you're no longer saying, this that what I want the audience to get. You're trying to get a certain reaction out of them, and it inverts. Right. And so the hard thing to do is when I say the hardest thing to me in public speaking is to just be yourself and to talk to the audience, just like you can be yourself with a good friend and talk to them. And you don't have to – we've all seen people when they're on stage, they turn into this, you know – car salesman or right. auctioneer or something like that. But, you know, there always drops and everything gets a little bit more. Exactly. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so pleased to be with you here today. <laughs> you know, and then and then you meet them in the hall and they're like, oh, but, Hi, hey, nice to you. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I go to me, this whole, you know, and I, Hill, Edmund Hillary said it uh, about climbing Mount Everest. You know, it's not the mountain you conquer. It's yourself. The world championship to me was, it's not the speech I conquered, it was myself. It was like, I got to know who I was. I got to know where my values were, what my value was to the audience. I got to really see what I believed in. It was that journey I, I, I traveled. And one of the reasons I feel people that have been through horrific situations in life. And uh, in a lot of the training I do, I go, I ask, do you ever feel like you don't have anything to talk about because you haven't had anything bad happened to you? And all these people go, yeah. <laughs> I go, the reason that I feel that people who've had horrendous situations happen to them are such good speakers is through that horrendous situation, they came to grips with who they were. And now all they do is they stand up and tell their story. But there's no question. The only way they got, they got through that, I talked about my uncle earlier. The only way he got through those seven and a half years, when he used to tell me, he, he used to wish they would let him die because it was so much pain from the torture yeah. because they wouldn't let you die. The only way you got through that was to get to know yourself really well because that was all you had to rely on. And so he speaks in the Navy and at the Navy War College on POW you know, uh, on issues and stuff. If the people are ever ca- captured and he's been doing that for years. And he's a, he's a great speaker because he's so comfortable with who he is based on the experience he had. The rest of us can still, can still attain that level of comfort. We don't have to be tortured for seven and a half years to get it. We don't have to be wrongly incarcerated for murder for 13 years to get it. Right. You know, we, we don't have to have cancer to overcome that to get it. We can get to know ourselves And one of the things that I've done in my life, and this is partly because I wanted to get to know myself, partly because I had so many personal wins doing it. But from a young age, I was diving into different adventure activities, you know, from climbing mountains to, you know, scuba diving under the ice and frozen lakes to I've sailed across the Atlantic. I've done all this stuff. And what I found when I put myself in those environments that I had to figure out how to make things work, I had to survive. I got to know who I was. But also... When I came back to my daily work, the problems I faced at work and the problems I faced in my community or at home seemed smaller based on the experience I just had. I can handle life better based on, you know, the what I overcame on my adventure at the time. And uh, so I had a lot of those things where I, I was able to, you know, sort of figure myself out that I th- that I, I created for myself in the process of that. But to me, the hardest thing is just be yourself, talk to the audience And be genuine and authentic, be humble in your approach, share with them, and really have the focus that you're trying to give them specific things that they will carry with them out of there that will help them in their life, That, that based on your words, that they will have something that will benefit them in their life that they can carry forward. Uh, from that standpoint, that's where I go. The power's in the simplicity, not in the complexity. The more simple your concepts, the more powerful they are.
1: And there's nothing more complex than figuring out who you are. But once you figure it out, your life becomes that much more simple. So Lance, yeah. way to sum it up. That was great. And speaking of value, as a last thought, when I saw you speak years ago, I come up on stage and I did some live coaching with you. And I was probably just still the uh, you know young ginger at that time. But in the back, you had all these postcards. And and the fact is, you said, take all the postcards you want. You know, if you want the CDs and the audio stuff, you have to pay for it. So I went back and I grabbed all the postcards and I still <laughs> know where they are. And they they might be a little outdated because it's so long ago. But this idea that when you spoke, there was enough value that I went to the back of the room so that I could keep that value with me over a longer period of time. And I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to pull out a really cool couple quotes from this podcast and I will keep that legacy going just like you're pulling up Martin, Lu- Martin Luther, I'll pull up the Lance Miller and and drop that like a hot cake elsewhere. How's that sound? Uh, that's fantastic. Thank you. All right. Well, hey, this has been great. Everybody you want to check out Lance will have all of that information in the show notes. Definitely check out his world championship speech. Regardless of how long ago it was, it still will speak to you. And man, this is just great. Get inspired. Find a local chapter, a rotary, a national speakers association, Toastmasters, Just get out there and find people surrounding yourself with people who are also trying to find out who they are. So you can take a message and share it. If you love this podcast, which you should, this was amazing. Leave a comment, share this podcast with other people, check out past episodes and definitely go out and show Lance some love online. So this is great, Lance. I look forward to connecting. Maybe we'll share the stage sometime and, uh, yeah, lots of great, valuable information here.
0: Uh, it's been my pleasure. It's been a fun, uh, Fun chat to have. I don't get to have a lengthy chat like this very often, so I've thoroughly enjoyed being able to delve into some of these issues. Nice. Well, we'll continue. I'll take you out to coffee, or we'll have a drink on Friday night. (laughs) Sounds great, Ryan. I appreciate
1: it. Thanks, Lance. Everybody, we will see you next week, or sooner, depending on when you download the next World of Speakers podcast. Adios.